G'day, welcome along to another sermon from Good News Christian Church in Howrah, Tasmania, Australia. I'm Bernard Kane, I'm the pastor. Get in touch sometime at goodnewschristianchurch.org or why not come by one Sunday morning. For now, here's the sermon. Would you join with me in prayer as we come to God's Word? Father in heaven, you have placed us in this world to love you with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength. And you call on us as part of that, not in competition with that, but as part of that, to love our neighbour as ourselves. Lord God, we pray that we might grow in living out that dual calling. We pray that we'd grow in that a little more today for the glory of Jesus and for the good of our world and even for our good in your hands. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. I thought fairly hard about whether to open with this story because I know that uh, the person that it concerns is related to some of you and known to even more of you And I wondered if it might seem like I'm airing dirty laundry. But then I thought, well, he's the one who wrote it in a book and he wrote it as a cautionary tale so that we'd learn from his mistake and uh, hopefully avoid his error. So here we go. John Sycamore, a Dutch immigrant uh, with his parents in the 50s, became a wildly successful businessman here in Tassie and uh, also in, uh, well, in Australia. He started his own business in financial planning, as many of you will know, which he went on to sell to a group backed by none other than the late, great Kerry Packer for, do you know how much? For $40 million. By all accounts, then, you'd think his work was a screaming success, wouldn't you? A screaming success, cashed up a real underdog. I mean, that is good work, right? But listen carefully. Listen carefully to the wreckage, to the collateral damage, to the cost of work to the rest of his life, as he tells it in his own story. He says, when I announced that we would be moving to Tasmania, this was, they were living in Melbourne at the time, when I announced that we would be moving to Tasmania, You could see the hurt in Sue's eyes. She had learned from many years of living with me that this wasn't up for discussion, so she tried to put on a brave face. But I could see that the great plan I had just imposed on her crushed her spirit. Perhaps a kinder, gentler husband would have demonstrated some compassion, but at the time, I thought she was acting like a spoiled child and secretly rationalised that it would be good for her to sacrifice a little. Isn't that what I had done? This would be her turn. And once she saw the house I was planning to build for her, she would change her mind. It didn't help when I also told her that she would have to sell her horse. Anyway, they move to Tasmania and they move into this dream house. And here's the scene, is that their grand entry, you might say. He writes, what began as a joy-filled moment in the living room of my dream house was now just another hollow moment that had become so commonplace in our marriage. 
The haunting sting of Sue's words on that evening pierced my heart, not so much because she dared to utter them, but because I knew they were true. John, you've become boring. You're no fun anymore. I tried to pull her close, but sensed that stiffness that had crept into our relationship. Generally, I'm not an emotional man, but at that moment, I felt something well up inside of me that felt like tears. I so wanted to believe that all my hard work, the dream house, living next to family and attending the church near where I had grown up, would bring Sue to her senses. I wanted to believe that I could engineer our marriage as I had done my career, systematically and with a ruthless drive for success. I thought I had made all the right moves to ensure her happiness. But as I released my grip and she slowly walked away, I couldn't help but recall the words that she'd said to me a few nights earlier after another exhausting argument. John, I'm not sure I want to be married to you. It's a common enough story, isn't it? It's not hard to relate to. I suspect we can read ourselves into it. We can find ourselves in that story. This month, we're looking at that part of our life that we call work. Uh, It's not all of life, of course. It is a big slab of life. For some of it, it is probably too much of our lives, if we're honest. Oliver O'Donovan puts it well. He says, men and women have always looked to work as the medium by which their existence is given significance. For some of us, it's far too much of our lives. For others of us, we wish it had more of us. Or at least we wish that the work that we do do was just honoured and respected and esteemed a little more highly. Being a mum, or volunteering, or living an active, retired life. And yet it's met with this question all the time, yes, 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 but what do you do all day? Work is a bit of a mess of a topic on the whole. And so we're at week two, you might remember we began the series last week, these sermons, they really do hold together in a way that perhaps my ordinary series of sermons don't. They hold together and hopefully build the picture, each contributing an important puzzle piece. Last week we came to see, now what did we see? We came to see work as a gift from our God, who would have us work very hard at the loving care of his creation. Do you remember that? We came to see work as a gift from our God, who would have us work hard at the loving care of this creation that is his and that he's bestowed this job upon us. That is good work when it's done well. This week we're getting a little bit more specific. I'm going to argue that us humans... We tend to have a pretty wonky way of connecting, let me put it this way, connecting my work with your good. We've got this funny, wonky way of putting together my work in the world with your benefit, your good. My work, perhaps, connecting that to my wife's good, like Sycamore in the story. My work with my fellow believer's good, perhaps. My work just with my fellow man's good, humanity, that is the real focus for us today, broad brush strokes, how do we put together faith and work and this world that is teeming with, full of people? How does my work benefit them? How does it connect to them? And how do I put that together with Jesus? 
Might my work be a bit more satisfying if I figured out uh, how to do that? Might be, might have put a bit of a zing back in my Monday morning if, uh, if I figured out how to put together Jesus, my faith, my work and the people of this world and how I actually contribute to them. Might it mean that I, I'm of this TGIM attitude instead of TGIF? Might I find a little bit more joy, a little less anxiety, even before God, if I manage to get it in perspective? I'm hoping that we we make some inroads there. And I have four points. I'd like us to dive in. Once again, we begin at the beginning to see that even in the blueprint of work, work was never for loners. Even right back in the garden, right back at the beginning where we saw last week, where we began last week, work was never for loners. Work began in and for community. Uh, Perhaps uh, turn with me to Genesis chapter 2, actually. You might remember God's very productive week of work. In Genesis 1, we read that last week, didn't we? His work week at the end of which he rested. More on that next week. Uh, This week, we're going to skip over to the retelling in chapter 2 of just one of those days. The retelling of day 6, because it brings in this community angle on God's blueprint for our life and our work in the world as uh, chapter 2 unpacks day 6 of creation. Would you please take it up uh, with me from verse 15 of chapter 2, if you're following along. Verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. There we go. That's very much last week, isn't it? The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable him. Just dwell on that verse for a moment, just that verse for just a minute. Wait a second, what do we hear again and again last week, every day of the creation, last week? What did we hear in God's uh, work in the world, his productive week? Do you remember at the end of each day, let's just pick up the, the kind of climax of it in chapter 1 verse 31, God saw all that he had made, does it come back to you now? God saw all that he had made and it was very good! That was his summary at the end of day six. This is fantastic. Look at this good world. This is great stuff. But hang on a sec. Now that we're in the nitty gritty of day six, we have this. Verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good. Hang on. We haven't got sin in the picture yet. We haven't got evil in the picture yet. And yet God can say, verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. Something like a, a job interview here, it seems almost. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of man and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. 
For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Now, get this. How does this connect with um, uh, work began in and for community? The naming of the animals, says Derek Kidner here. The naming of the animals, that paragraph there, a scene which portrays man as monarch of all that he surveys, poignantly reveals him as a social being, made for fellowship, not power. He will live, he, he, sorry, get this, he will not live until he loves, giving himself away to another on his own level. And so the woman is presented wholly as his partner and counterpart. Nothing is yet said of her as childbearer. She is valued for herself alone. Can you see the beginnings of community here? Can you see from the day six, hang on, this is not good. It is not good until there's community. I don't think it's even talking about marriage in such a specific sense. It does go there, of course. No, I think it's just talking about community. We're not built to work as loners. It is both the context for the work to be done and, in a sense, the goal. And the very first work, you might say, in and for community is what? It's that poem there from Adam as he sees his wife. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman for she was taken out of man. The first work is a love song. That is a little bit of hope for us artists and poets among us. Now, may I ask you, if we know that this community in and for, for fellow man and with fellow man, if that's stitched into life, into work, right from the blueprint, how are you going in your work at doing work that enriches community, that helps mankind to flourish, that works with mankind for the flourishing of this world. Is that what you do day to day, week to week? Complete the sentence for me. My work nurtures others. It nurtures community by... How would you finish that sentence? My work helps mankind particularly to flourish under God as I... Now, I'm not just talking to the people with nine to five jobs that pick up a paycheck. Believe it or not, I'm reminded here of a little passage from the law, actually, from Deuteronomy 24 here. Might seem a funny place to go, but it just seems to capture some of this. Uh, Let me read it to you from Deuteronomy 24, verse 19. It's just talking about farming, okay? Okay. Can you see the way it enriches the whole community, the the whole fabric of humanity here? When you are harvesting, God says in his law to the people of Israel at the time, when you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, don't go back to get it. So I missed some. Don't go back to get it. Leave it for the alien, the fatherless and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat the olives from your trees, don't go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the alien, the fatherless and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, don't go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the alien, the fatherless and the, and the widow. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. That's why I command you to do this. Can you see God's blueprint for work? 
It's not just about productivity. It's not just about the care of the non-human creation. No, no, no. We're surrounded by a, a planet full of people. And our work contributes to their flourishing. In fact, our work happens in the midst of uh, a community of, of mankind. Here's another one. This lady is probably the gold standard, I'd want to say, of work in the Old Testament. Do you realise that the gold standard, at least as I see it, in the Old Testament of work, it's not a man, it's not a king. In fact, we don't even know her name. Proverbs 31. Do you remember the, the lady there? Now, as I read it to you, just try to count up how many people's lives she is touching and contributing to just in the course of a very normal kind of a day. Proverbs 31, we meet this lady here, a wife of noble character who can find. She is worth far more than rubies. Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. She brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. She selects wool and flax and works with eager hands. She's like a merchant ship, bringing her food from afar. She gets up while it's still dark. She provides food for her family and portions for her servant girls. She considers a field and buys it. Out of her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She sets about her work vigorously. Her arms are strong for her tasks. She sees that her trading is profitable and her lamp does not go out at night. In her hand, she holds the distaff and grasps the spindle with her fingers. She opens her arms to the poor and extends her hands to the needy. When it snows, she has no fear. For her household, for all of them are clothed in scarlet. She makes coverings for her bed. She's clothed in fine linen and purple. Her husband is respected at the city gate, where he takes his seat among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them, and supplies the merchants with sashes. She is clothed with strength and dignity. She can laugh at the days to come. She speaks with wisdom and faithful instruction is on her tongue. She watches over the affairs of her household and doesn't eat the bread of idleness. Her children arise and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women do noble things, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her the reward she has earned and let her works bring her praise at the city gate. I think it bears thinking about why do I work? Why? What drives me to work? We saw some false paths of that last week, but is it, is it all about me? Why do I work? Why do I work the job that I work? Is it the care of creation? Is it cultivating community amongst the people of this planet? Why do I work? Or is it all about me in the end? Do you remember that cocktail from last week where we ward off emptiness by working for fulfilment, reputation and consumption, how much we can suck out of life? The cocktail, says uh, Andrew Cameron, the cocktail of fulfilment, reputation and consumption is intoxicating for a while. I don't know, I think sometimes we just need a reset, don't we? I'm not working for me. We need to go back to God's blueprint. I'm not working for me. I'm not in this for me. My whole life isn't all about me. So my work can't be all about me. I work unto the Lord for the good of the world in general 
and for the good of mankind, of humanity in particular. Is that why you work? Is that what gets you up on Monday morning to head out to the office? Tim Keller puts it like this. God gives us talents and gifts so we can do for one another what he wants to do for us and through us. But if that's the vision, sadly work just hasn't worked out that way, has it? Harmonious work that enriches community. Is that what your workplace is like? I'd like to come and work there, please. And the Bible calls us on it. Do you remember, for example, do you remember Cain, uh, perhaps, uh, from you know, the child of Adam and Eve, trying to work his way, claw his way back to God? As if sinful man could do that just by tossing out some offerings to God. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. Do you remember the brothers? And in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favour on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favour. And so Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. See him trying to claw his way back to God? And then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what's right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what's right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Well, do you remember the Tower of Babel? I won't read all that now. Uh, The Tower of Babel, that had the community thing going for it, actually, didn't it? They just didn't want a bar of God. Verse 4 of chapter 11, then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches up to the heavens, so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered on the face of the earth. It's like we seesaw from Cain to Babel, in a sense, impressing God on the one hand, trying to with our work, trying to drive our significance in life from the things that we do through the week, on the one hand, trying to make ourselves noticed before God, Seesaw between that and rejecting God. Let's build a tower, let's make a name for ourselves with our work, never mind about God. I'll make him like me, who cares if he likes me? I'll make myself a real somebody on my own. Now, now, there is a quick one that I I do want us to read here. Uh, It's the one that Alex read for us before. And it, it it gets at this community aspect in a way that I think we can probably relate to. It gets at the aloneness Uh, Would you come with me to Ecclesiastes in chapter 4, please? One of our favourite from last week, I reckon. Ecclesiastes passage, fair to say. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. This is a different little section. And it's looking on what drives us to work and what we're driven to in work. Ecclesiastes 4, verse 4, it's it's no God and no friends and no joy in work or life. Verse 4, and I saw that all labour and all achievement spring from man's envy of his neighbour. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. The fool folds his hand and ruins himself, better one handful with tranquillity than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Have a look again, verse 7. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. Ring any bells? He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling? 
he asked. And why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless. A miserable business. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Also, if two lie down together, they'll keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Do you ever feel alone at work? It's not the aloneness that you feel when the officers... um, You can feel alone even when the officers chock a block, can't you? And you can feel alone when the classroom is full. It's the isolation that you can feel in the busy meeting room or the bustling lunchroom. You feel alone. It's not whether people are there, it's whether you, plural, are there together or whether you're each there on your own. Do you see? We weren't built to do, uh, to do work on our own. We weren't built to do work for just my own interests. And I suppose I tell the sob story of work and I rub it in a little bit because for all of the glimmers of hope that we have for work, the dream job, as we saw last week, becomes just the day job and the dream team of our workmates or our colleagues or our classmates become the enemy somehow. And the most God-focused among us works for that phony trinity, that false community of me, myself and I. And so in our darker moments, it turns to Ecclesiastes, doesn't it? In our darker moments, we begin to wonder why we do it. We wonder if anyone had noticed if we stopped doing it or care if we left. We begin to wonder what's the point. Now, before we close... I hope by this point you are chewing over that same question that we came to last week. Do you remember it? The same question that we came to last week. Are you chewing it over? Because as I often said, when we talk work, it suffers from this desperate disconnection, this separation from the gospel. And so every other week I stand up here and I'm on about Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And then I talk about work and suddenly it's all, well, it's creation and it's wisdom and it's community and it's proverbs and these sorts of things. Yes, but how do I connect it with my faith? How do I connect my work with Jesus? Can you remind me with that? Well, the temptation on the topic of community is to dive straight to the kingdom of God. And we're going to talk more about that next week. When you're talking about community, you think of the community of God's people, you think about uh, the, the, the new humanity that God is recreating, you think of the work of the gospel, more on that next week. This week, I just want to say, Christian in Jesus... I think you find reason to believe that insofar as your work is helping mankind flourish, that is good work. Insofar as your work is helping mankind flourish in ways that God intended, that is good work. In the same way that helping the creation flourish is good work. And so am I saying that Christians ought to be at the forefront of initiatives that help mankind to flourish, that help pick those up at the fringes of things, as we've heard already about this morning. Is that what I'm saying, that we should be at the front instead of trailing behind? Yes, I am saying that. I don't think you can get past that from the creation pattern. But come with me, come with me. 
to Mark's gospel because I want to see how this plugs into Jesus and plugs into the way he sees human life. Mark's gospel in chapter 3. Would you come with me there? Just a little hint again. And we're going to have to explore much more next week how this plugs into the work of God, the kingdom of God, um, all that kind of thing in particular. Just a general point this week. Mark chapter 3 and verse 13. I wonder, can you keep your eye out for this? Why did Jesus appoint disciples? Come with me, verse 13. Jesus went up on a mountainside. This is right at the beginning of his ministry. And called to him those whom he wanted. And they came to him. He appointed 12, designating them apostles that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Funny little paragraph. Answer me this, why did Jesus appoint disciples? And notice, they didn't flock to him. Like Cain, they weren't clawing their way back to God. No, no, he appointed them. He chose them. Jesus was gathering these people. So why? Why did Jesus call disciples to himself? There are two answers in the passage and not one. And that's what I want us to notice. I want us to see the first one. Do you see it there? Verse 14 that they might be with him. With him. Do you remember God's blueprint for community work, work in and for community? It is not good for man to be alone. Don't just skip to the second bit, which we're going to focus on next week, of proclamation. You know, it's, no, this is about Jesus being fully human and living God's way in the world. And he is saying, gather around me. We're going to do life God's way. We're going to do human life God's way. William Lane, he looks at this passage, verse 14, like this. He says, Jesus chose these 12 men for the specific purpose that they might be with him and that he might extend his mission through them. Mark devotes primary attention to the presence of the disciples with Jesus and their preparation for mission. And as I said, we'll say much more about the mission and that work of God in the narrow sense. But for this week, I just want us to pause at this much. Community, it matters to Jesus. Helping mankind flourish, that matters to Jesus. Communion with people matters to Jesus. Community amongst people matters to Jesus. Work that builds that kind of community that we long for, well, it begins with Jesus. By this, men will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. Well, to conclude, brothers and sisters... Be you sparkies, plumbers, be you teachers, mums, students, lawyers, helpers of refugees, visitors of the sick, customer servers, gardeners. I'll leave you with this story. Perhaps you'll remember it. 
A caretaker helped save my life. This is Tim Adney. A caretaker helped save my life. We were driving to Melbourne from Sydney via an overnight stop with friends in Wagga. Sometime after we crossed into Victoria, we stopped at a roadside rest area because we should every two hours, because we had three children in the car and because I was tired. Three minutes into our stop, we started talking about the rest area. There was space to park and there was shade, but also flowers and a lawn. There were toilets, clean! And there was a 15-minute walk with a wooden footpath and handrail included. Here was evidence of good work, a part of creation, ordered and redeemed, kept beautiful and made useful. While we talked, the caretaker arrived in his ute. He got out and started tidying around the bins, cutting the edge of the lawn and cleaning the toilets. I walked over to comment and say thank you for the place and for his work. He didn't look up but replied, if we make them nice, more people will stop. More evidence of good work. Yes, it was good because he restored one part of creation, but more than that, it was good because he blessed people and their relationships. Like the hairdresser who helps me to get a job. Or the mechanic who enables me to visit my parents. Or the chef who gives me an evening of conversation with friends. He left just before we did. And I wondered how many more sites he was able to look after in a day and how many lives that he had saved. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, many of us work, work, work through the week. Uh, We know that it's tiring, we know that it gives us rewards, we know that it helps us and helps our family. Father, too often we confess, we don't really bring our work to you, we don't really conceive of our work as being done unto the Lord and before you. Father God, we pray, would you please grant us to see you as the creator God, who has plans for this world and who has put us in it with the gifts and the talents that we have to be a blessing in the care of this creation and especially in the care of the community of mankind. Lord God, may we not just see the benefit of our work for others, but may we really prize it. May we have a little bit more joy in our work because of it, seeing that it is work that's pleasing to you and good in your eyes. And Father in heaven, as we look toward and think toward the work of the kingdom of God, uh, we pray, Father, that we might not um, uh, so emphasise the work of the kingdom, the work of redemption, that we forget that we are created beings who live in a created world, um, who can bless the rest of creation and each of the creatures, each of the people, Uh, who who you have placed us here amongst. So, Lord God, fill us with joy as we go to work this week. Give us a satisfaction in it, we pray, not because by it we make ourselves significant, 
but because in it we can express our gratitude and our thanks. We can live out our faith before you. Do that work in us, we ask, today, tomorrow, until we come back together. In Jesus' name, amen.